The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily Bloomberg iHeart podcast. And I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael, Managing Editor of Crypto for Bloomberg News. It's Tuesday, August 30th. For crypto enthusiasts, a big change is in the air. And it's not just the change of seasons. The merge is a phrase on everyone's lips. It would be the Ethereum blockchain's most ambitious software upgrade ever, coming after years of delays. This upgrade would represent a fundamental overhaul of how the Ethereum blockchain works and would if all goes according to this very ambitious plan. A major shift away from the current approach that's known as proof of work. In its place, Ethereum would adopt the proof-of-stake model, which proponents say is significantly more energy-efficient than proof-of-work, but skeptics worry is less secure. Ether has soared about 60% since June, as traders and developers alike position themselves for this big transition. So, what does the merge mean for users? What are the risks associated with this upgrade? And why is it finally happening now, after all these years? Bloomberg Crypto reporters Olga Karif. Pretty much everybody in the system will be affected. And David Pan. The amount of money involved in this is very, very striking. Join me today to tackle these questions. Hello and welcome. So today we're just going to, I'm just going to say it, we're going to get a little bit nerdy, <laughs> but no one who's listening should be worried. I've got two of the, the foremost professionals as it comes to reporting on Ethereum and the merge in various studios today. I think we're in like three different states right now, <laughs> such as the power of audio. But Olga, I'm, I'm going to start with you. We've said the word of the merge several times on this on this podcast. We've mentioned that it relates to what is basically a huge software upgrade for the Ethereum blockchain. But when we talk about the merge, what are we actually talking about? So we are talking about the changeover in the way uh, transactions on Ethereum are ordered. So today, uh, this very uh, powerful computers called miners essentially do the job. And with the merge, uh, we're going to switch to a much more energy efficient system using essentially wallets with staked coins. These wallets are called validators. The new system is called proof of stake. And essentially, it's going to reduce energy consumption of Ethereum by 99%, which is huge. And uh, it's also going to mean sort of a number of major shifts uh, for the, the whole Ethereum ecosystem. So there's a couple of things there that I want to dive more deeply into, and I'm going to start with 
the big macro, which is what you say is the whole Ethereum ecosystem. Well, who's in that ecosystem? You know, folks might know, for example, that to like buy certain NFTs, you have to pay in Ether. But what are the other elements of this ecosystem that are going to be affected? Pretty much everybody in, in the system will be affected. We are going to see validators, of course, who are going to be uh, key to ordering transactions. We are going to see builders who are going to be uh, essentially packaging transactions into blocks. And uh, essentially this change could attract more developers and more investors to Ethereum because it's very important for a lot of investors to mm-hmm. invest in energy efficient projects. They want to comply with their ESG requirements. And the same is true with a lot of developers who are environmentally conscious. And so Uh, It's believed that once Ethereum switches over to this new system, this could potentially lead to an influx of new investors, new developers, and just new users who will be to whom uh, this this idea of uh, an environmentally friendly Ethereum will appeal to. Got it. So right now, Ethereum is on something that you described as proof of work, which is the same system that Bitcoin is on. So, David, I'm just going to ask you. If you had to explain the difference between proof of work and proof of stake to somebody without using a crypto example, <laughs> what would you say? I think at the end of the day, it's a it's a software. So the the blockchain Ethereum is a blockchain. A proof of work is one way to secure the network and also you know to validate the transaction data on the digital ledger. And from proof of work to proof of stake. I would say, like how exactly we secure the network, validate the data on the blockchain. On the proof of work, we use computers. On the proof of stake, we use validators uh, who are essentially, you know, the people who are holding Ethereum in the node. Okay, so on proof of work, on current Ethereum blockchain, on Bitcoin, you, David, send a Bitcoin to Olga which you can't actually because you don't hold any, but, you know, different different disclosure story. But in theory, you send a Bitcoin to Olga because you just have $20,000 lying around. And for that transaction to kind of go through and be validated, there's a bunch of computers somewhere that are kind of processing the existence of that transaction and saying like, yes, this thing is valid. This has moved from you, David, to your wallet, David, to your wallet, Olga. And that's kind of like simplistically the proof of work conversation, right? There are like computers figuring out computationally that this thing, this transaction is valid. If you on a proof of stake blockchain move one ether from your wallet, David, to Olga, what is it that the the validators do exactly that's different from what the computers in Bitcoin do? So uh, the new software, the updated software, will randomly assign, you know, the task of validating this particular data to a specific group of um, validators, you know, people who are holding, essentially people who are holding the Ether cryptocurrency, and they will perform the task of, of validating the data in the servers that belong to them. So that's one of the reasons why proof of stake could have higher speed, uh, transaction speed, is because in proof of work, you have to update this data among millions of computers and they have to be in sync of the same data at the same time. That's why we call it decentralized proof of work uh, mechanism. But like under Mm -hmm. proof of stake, it's like 
you have this uh, like a selected group of validators who are validating the the data on blockchain, which is faster and which is like easier to prove the transactions. How do you become a validator? I mean, there are a couple of ways. Ideally, you can stake at least a thirty-two ether tokens. Um, you can operate at, as a node, but like. As far as I know, a lot of these people do not have thirty-two ether because <laughs> that's a lot of money for an average person. So people put their ETH holdings into centralized exchanges like Coinbase and Kraken, and they will stake the, the, the tokens for the investors, for the users, and the users can, can enjoy the yields. And the other major way is decentralized platforms who are also providing staking services for. Ether holders. The biggest one is called Lido. It's a protocol, and investors can put their ether into the protocol and and earn yield from from it. So Olga, I'm going to go back to you. What about moving from proof of work to proof of stake leads to that supposed 99% increase in energy efficiency? So today. To mine Ethereum, people use very powerful computers. When you move to proof of stake, you will be able to use essentially a laptop to be a validator on the network. Basically, you don't need as much computing power, and so that makes the whole system much more energy efficient. To be a miner, you have to have a data center. To be a validator, you could have like a MacBook. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Pretty much. Yep. Pretty much, yep. yeah. That's a pretty significant jump. And, you know, Olga, one of the, you know, we've, we've sort of talked about the mechanics here, but I want to go back to the idea of this being a gigantic software upgrade. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever, ever like, upgraded your computer or your phone and then suddenly nothing works anymore and it's just really frustrating and you're like, why? Is this software upgrade going to go completely smoothly? Like, is everything just going to be totally fine? You know, that's the funny thing. I think a lot of people today expect that it's gonna just be a switch over one second. Uh, it's one system, another second, it's another system. Nobody even noticed anything. And ideally, this is exactly what's gonna happen. Nobody will notice mm -hmm. a thing. <laughs> but uh, if if we go by past experience, chances are things are not gonna go as smoothly as that. So if we look at uh, Ethereum's 2016 major software upgrade, back then there were literally weeks or even a couple of months of problems that arose from that switch. The main issue was replay attacks. Because when a blockchain upgrades to new software, very often there is a contingent of people who likes the system just the way it was and they don't want to <laughs> upgrade and they don't want to switch to a new system. And so they essentially copy the, the software and uh, start running what is called a fork. So essentially it's, it's the same Ethereum with the same coins, with the same applications, but it's going to be using, say, proof of work instead of proof of stake this time. Mm -hmm. And what can happen in a replay attack is that a hacker can use a, a user's transaction on one of those chains that, are, that look very similar to each other and replay it on, on the other chain and the user can lose coins. This was rampant in 2016. Ethereum implemented some protections against this since then, 
but we could still still see some replay attacks if some of the applications hadn't sort of implemented these protections properly. And in addition to that, we could also see some other glitches which came up during the last test before the merge was announced. Uh, it was called the Gurley merge test. And during that test, some of the validators' nodes sort of didn't quite sync properly. And there were several blocks that sort of said that I am the, the block when the merge happened. So, so very curious, strange things happened basically during the last mm -hmm. test before the merge. And, and the same kind of strange things could occur during the merge. And in the most sort of extreme scenario, we could potentially uh, see the need for the network to be paused and for some blocks to be redone. So there could be a lot of issues that come up. And in fact, a lot of uh, experts say, you know, if you're a user, try to do as little as possible <laughs> around the merge. Don't do anything <laughs> if you don't need to. And just be very, very careful. Up next, Bloomberg reporters Olga Karif and David Pan unpack some of the risks involved in the merge and what could go wrong. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So if I'm hearing you correctly, a replay attack is like the clue is in the name. So let, let's say I am on the one version, I'm on like the upgraded software, and I sell an NFT, or I buy something, or I do some kind of DeFi transaction. Somebody can look at my transaction history and effectively like spoof me on the fork and make it look like I'm selling that NFT again. Or, you know, I'm doing that transaction again. So as a, as a user, I'm potentially exposed to like twice as much financial risk than I was when I did it the first time. It's like if somebody clones your credit card and then, you know, it's just like repeating everything that you've done previously. Other than like not doing anything <laughs> while, while this upgrade is happening, what do you do to protect yourself if you're kind of a user and you're worried about this? One idea that people suggested was that, okay, if you want to do something on the fork chain, before you do anything, just move all your coins into a different wallet so that uh, the wallet that is uh, assigned to you on the fork chain does not look the same as the wallet that you now have. And then a replay attack cannot really happen. So that's, that's one idea. But a lot of people just caution people <laughs> to... Just stay away from 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 <laughs> doing anything if you can. Neither of those sounds like the best possible outcome <laughs> for <laughs> for an end user. So when is it supposed to happen? There is a clock tracking this, and the timing could still change. But for right now, it's supposed to be September fifteenth. But the thing is, 
the timing will depend on how much computing power is supporting Ethereum, how much miner support it has. It is possible that really close to the time of the merge, a bunch of miners will decide to sell their equipment or switch to supporting another chain and all of a sudden Ethereum loses a bunch of miner support and then the merge could be pulled forward. So the timing is still very much in flux, but but it should hopefully happen in the next few weeks. There were expectations that the merge would happen years ago and even, uh, you know, this June, uh, and it didn't. But but this is the first time when it's actually been scheduled, officially scheduled. So, David, who's going to make money on this and who's going to lose money on this? So the biggest winners are some of these centralized exchanges who are facilitating staking they are charging a fee by providing staking services to their users. Most of the exchanges, they don't have their own staking infrastructure, which, mm-hmm. you know, where like you can operate the software to all stake the tokens directly. Coinbase mm-hmm. is, a, is a good example. It doesn't have the staking infrastructure, but like it provides very attractive yields to its users through the staking programs. It sources the staking infrastructure from a third-party company called uh, Kiln, uh, K-I-L-N. They are, they are the winners after the merge. And then, of course, uh, Kraken, for instance, they actually bought staking infrastructure provider uh, about a year and a half ago. So they also have their hand in that business as well. The amount of money involved in this is very, very striking. One analyst expected that there, there's going to be over $140 billion worth of the tokens as being staked in the protocol. Because if we look at the other major proof of state networks like Solana and Cardano, they have a ratio of anywhere between 60% to 70% of the total supply being staked in in their protocol or like in the staking programs. One thing that occurs to me that we should probably define is just what staking is. Sure. So so staking is essentially using your coins to order transactions on the network. And what's cool about staking is that it's a very good way for the network to keep tabs on validators that order transactions and make and, and keep them honest essentially because if a staker is doing something bad for the network, is not being honest, is not verifying, you know, or ordering transactions correctly, then that validator can potentially lose its stake. Its coins could be taken away. And that's a very effective way of uh, making sure that validators don't do something they shouldn't. For example, you know, attack the network, try to to push through a, a transaction uh, using the same coin twice, that sort of thing. Because the, one of the incentives that we didn't describe in terms of, of staking is the fact that if you as a normal person, you know, like stakes your crypto on an exchange, you get a yield on it, right? So if you, if you like on the Kraken website, for example, um, they're advertising as of mid-August, earn up to 23% yearly on your crypto for as we, this word that we've been using for like staking your crypto on on these exchanges. So there are lots of different incentives at play here. Well, we will be watching it unfold and we'll be writing about how it unfolds and we'll be talking about how it unfolds in the podcast. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll, I'll be talking to both of you again in the coming weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can find more of Olga and David's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal on Bloomberg.com or follow them on Twitter. Olga is at Olga Karif. 
that's K-H-A-R-I-F, and David is at davidpan underscore one. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, we're going to get into stablecoins, and into one of them in particular. Tether is one of the largest and most liquid digital assets trading today, and that market influence has attracted both regulatory scrutiny and investor skepticism. We'll discuss Tether's latest disclosures about its assets and what the market is expecting next. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at Crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Sharon Barrero. Associate producer is Ty Butler. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidron. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.